If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. In Hebrew, that's Yeshiahu, the Lord is salvation, or Yeshua is the Lord. We are in chapter 64. We are in verse 9. Chapter 64 to 66 are about the second coming of the Lord to establish the messianic kingdom on earth and then to eternity future. We are still in that section of Isaiah which began back in the 40s, where God said, take all their idols, all your idols, pile them, up, pile them up into a big pile and ask them what happened yesterday. Too hard? Ask them what will happen tomorrow. Too hard? What's the problem? You're asking a stick of wood. And then God says, oh, do you realize you plant a tree, you cut it down, Use half of it to cook your food and you worship the other half. Are you that stupid? He doesn't pull punches sometimes. So he said, I will tell you the end from the beginning. And he lays out from 2,700 years ago through the birth of Messiah, his death, burial, and resurrection, his redemption of fallen mankind, the reestablishment of the state of Israel, the rapture and the resurrection, the second coming, the establishment of the kingdom and into eternity future and says now what do you think they should do with that pile of wooden idols and the match they're holding mm. yeah okay verse 9 do not be furious O Lord nor remember iniquity forever indeed please look we all are your people the key of verse 9 is do not be furious nor remember iniquity for how long forever. God must judge iniquity. Iniquity is lawlessness. God must judge it because he said he would. What happens if God says he's going to do something and then he doesn't? He will be a liar. Does God lie? Scripture says absolutely not. So we can trust it. So there must be scriptures elsewhere that tell us that God will not remember iniquity forever or be furious forever. The first one is in Micah chapter 7. Micah, in Hebrew, Micha, who is like? Short for Michael, Michael, who is like God? Micah chapter 7, verse 18. What does Micha mean, who is like? Look how verse 18 starts. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Notice God always has a remnant. God even required Isaiah to name one of his sons. What? Uh -huh, which means the remnant shall return. But notice it goes on in verse 18 to say, He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. That verse tells us volumes worth. Because what does it mean he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy? What's he waiting for? Why is Israel still in captivity? Waiting for repentance. He delights in mercy. To whom does God show mercy? The repentant. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20 where God tells us in so many words to whom he shows mercy. There are teachings out there that say God shows mercy to everyone at all times. 
doesn't come from the Bible. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations, to those who love me and what? Keep my commandments. So to go from unrepentant Israel to be bathed in God's mercy, what intervened? They repented. They turned back to God with their whole heart. This is also at Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 is where you find the text of the new covenant. A covenant is set... Before I go there... Could you go back to Exodus 20 and, and that sentence in front of what you just read in Exodus 26... Okay. bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Yeah. Does that mean the people who have hated the Lord, their children have no chance for salvation? No, let's read it. She's on Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them, talking about pagan idols, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of... This describes the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So if the children continue the hatred of God of the parents, then they continue under God's judgment. Once they repent and turn back to God, they're not under judgment because God doesn't judge us for the actions of our ancestors. He judges us based on what we do. So the, of those who hate me, describe the children to the third and fourth generations. But Daniel prayed in his prayer for the nation repentance. And forgive us because of the sins of our fathers. Yes. Because he wanted, him, he wanted God to know that they were not going to continue those sins. That they had turned away from them. And Daniel being royalty has the ability to repent on behalf of the people. God will continue to judge generation after generation until repentance. Sure could. How many generations has Israel been in captivity since 70 AD? <laughs> a lot. They're in captivity because of what the fathers did. And because they haven't repented of it but continue in it. What happens when they repent and turn from it? That's Hosea chapter 6. Repentance and they get to come home. Does that answer the question? It must. Jeremiah chapter 31. These are the words of the new covenant. The covenant is a contract. Sealed by blood. And in chapter 31 verse 33. Here is the new covenant. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days says the Lord. I will put my law, that's the word Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So they will be obedient to God out of love. Where God said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But verse 34 goes on to explain, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. What does this indicate? What has Israel done? Israel has repented, as we read last night in Hosea chapters 5 and 6. To know the Lord is to keep his commandments. And how do we know that? 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So you have those two go together like a hand in a glove. Let's also go back to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Oops, I see a red number one out there. Let me see who's got a comment. Uh, let me ask Jeremiah 31, 33. Please explain after those days. So as soon as we finish Exodus here, I will go back and explain that better. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy, that's that same word mercy, for thousands, that's thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, Wait a minute, if he's forgiving iniquity and sin, how is he by no means clearing the guilty? Because he's a righteous judge and they have repented. Nowhere in the scripture do we find God forgiving unrepentant people. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now let's answer Nummy's question. Let's go back to Jeremiah 31. I took the shorthand approach, and maybe I shouldn't have. The New Covenant description begins in chapter 31, verse 31. And to help understand what does it mean after those days, let's start in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming. See how the word days is plural? That began with the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah and goes through to the new kingdom. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. That's a brit chadashah, a renewed covenant. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What blood was it that confirmed that covenant? The blood of Messiah, his crucifixion. At the Last Supper, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, that covenant was written on stone. It was external. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. Meaning this comes into fulfillment in the day of the Lord when Messiah has returned for the Messianic kingdom. 
So verse 31 started 2,000 years ago. Verse 33 is yet to begin. And notice it's made with the house of Israel. Where's the church? The Gentile believers are grafted into Israel, as we're going to find in Romans chapter 11. There is no new covenant for the Gentiles separate from Israel. Must be grafted in. After those days means after the 2,000 years have passed and the Messianic kingdom comes. I'll put my law, that's the Torah, in their minds and write it on their hearts. Meaning it will be our very desire to do the things of God. So if you believe that you are in the new covenant now, you should be, your heart's desire should be to follow God, to be obedient to him, to demonstrate your love to him. And how do we demonstrate our love to God according to 1 John chapter 5 verses 3 and 4? By keeping his commandments, by obedience. That's exactly right. Yes, sir. Uh, back in Micah chapter 7, we went verse 18. Verse 19, following 18. Well, let's go to Micah chapter 7 so I can look at it. That's, that's been sitting in my mind. Well, let's go resolve it then. Uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 19. 19. He will again have compassion on us. And he will subdue our iniquities. When the Torah written on our hearts and minds, then it's our desire to be obedient. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. To cast, you will cast, is tashlik. That's what we do, if you remember, on the first day of the Feast of Trumpets, is we go down to a flowing river and we take the breadcrumbs or the crumbs out of our pockets and cast them on the water. That's why we're doing that. We're symbolically saying we want Messiah to take all our sins away as far as the east is from the west. That's Tashlik. That's the word there that gives rise to the service. Did that answer your question, Bill? Yes, sir. Very good. And Nami says that's good enough for her. Okay, back to, which one should we go back to? Let's go to Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Why do I jump all over the Bible all around? Because I want you to see that the Bible says the same thing. Whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's all the same. Numbers 14, 18 to 19. That is, the teaching is all the same. The Testament says the Old Testament is there for our what? For our learning, that we should learn from it. How many times do we as parents tell our children, I wish you could just learn from my mistakes and not have to do your own? Yeah. Numbers 14, verses 18 to 19. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Another word for mercy is loving kindness. The Hebrew word is chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty. You see these same words again. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, that is of those who refuse to repent. But the prayer goes on, pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. 
But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. What does all the earth mean? Does God want everybody to worship him? Jew and Gentile alike, from all nations, all peoples, all tribes, and all tongues? Absolutely. Let's go to Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36. Verse 3. This is a very important verse because there's a that in it. And I want to look at that word that. So verse 3 says, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So let's look at the first that. God wants them to hear the judgments that will fall if they do not repent. And why does he want them to hear that? That everyone may turn from his evil way. God wants them to repent. He doesn't want to bring judgment upon them. But if they won't repent, he has no choice. So he sends the prophet and preaches, these are the disasters that are going to befall you if you don't repent. And God is calling you to repent. Then there's the second thing. Because if they will repent, I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. God sets up a very important principle here. He doesn't want to judge anyone. He wants everyone to repent. Can you think of some place in the New Testament where it says that specifically? Maybe in 2 Peter? Maybe in chapter 3? Let's go look. Maybe I'm making it up. But I don't think so. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 9. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It probably would have been better if they had said, not wanting that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. But what's the next word? But. It's God's great desire that everyone would repent and be saved. But. Why the but? What do we have? We have free will. We can choose to be saved or not. Why is it that so many people refuse to be saved? Is because they lack faith. They don't really believe that there is a God who will bring judgment upon the unredeemed. But you know what? There is. Let us go back to Isaiah chapter 64. We're up to verse 10. Your holy cities are a wilderness. 
How many of you read what Mark Twain wrote about Israel in the 1850s? 1850s. A desolate wasteland, right? That's exactly the way it was for almost 2,000 years. Rome didn't just kick out the Jews. They cut down every tree and plowed the ground with salt. What does salty ground grow? Nothing. So your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion, Zion. Zion is the word that applies to wherever God's throne on earth is. Zion is a wilderness. He's talking about the temple mount. The place where the first temple stood, the place where the second temple stood, but there hasn't been a temple there for almost 2,000 years now. Jerusalem, a desolation. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. Jerusalem used to be called Yerushalayim Shel Zahab, Jerusalem of gold. They said it was the most beautiful city in the world. Because of all the white limestone and gold on the temple, when the sun shone upon it, it looked like the very place just glowed. It was so beautiful. 1 Kings 8, starting in verse 46. This is Solomon doing a a dedication prayer. How about that? Let me make it two words. A dedication prayer for the new temple on the Temple Mount. And it discusses with God the fact that God's going to be angry and the people are going to be judged. Verse 46, when they say against, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Hey, that's what Romans 3 says, right? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's also what Isaiah 53 says. We're all like sheep, having gone astray. So when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, that's the three captivities, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. There was the Assyrian captivity, then the Babylonian captivity, then the Roman diaspora. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and what? Repent and make supplication to you. What's a supplication? It's a prayer. In the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul, that's the Vayahafta. In the land of their enemies who led them away captive and prayed to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers. When Daniel prays his prayer of repentance in Daniel chapter 9, which way does he face? He faces Jerusalem. Why? Because of this verse. And they prayed to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of the iron furnace. 
that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel and to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance. As you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Notice it's actually not O Lord God, is it? It's O my Lord, the Lord. The word God there is the tetragrammaton. So what is the significance of turning toward Jerusalem when you pray the prayer of repentance as you turn toward the Temple Mount? It's a statement that I have repented and I want to come back and worship you. I want to come back and be obedient to you. I want to follow you in your ways. And God will answer that prayer. Let's go back to verse 11. Isaiah 64, 11. Remember when, I, when Isaiah writes this, Jerusalem is just fine. So these are words of prophecy. Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. When Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, did Rome burn the temple? How could God possibly have known 700 years before that they were going to do that? Because he's God. I want to read to you a little article here written by Josephus about the temple burning, because he was there. Introductory comment. Here is Josephus' description of the moment when the first flame is put to the temple. The agent of destruction is an anonymous Roman soldier acting impulsively against the orders of the commander Titus, but obeying the orders Josephus implies of the highest authority. Titus ordered the soldiers to spare the temple. But what had God said 700 years before? It was going to burn. This is from War 6.4.5, pages 249 to 253. It says, so Titus retired into the Tower of Antonia, that was just to the north of the temple, and resolved to storm the temple the next day early in the morning with his whole army and to encamp around about the holy house. But as for that house, God had for certain long ago doomed it to the fire. And now that fatal day was come, according to the revolution of the ages. It was the tenth day of the month, Louis, that's in the Roman calendar. The Hebrew month was Av. What's the ninth day of Av to Shabbat Av? Upon which it was formerly burnt by the king of Babylon. Although these flames took their rise from the Jews themselves and were occasioned by them, for upon Titus's retiring, the seditious lay still for a little while and then attacked the Romans again. When those that guarded the holy house fought with those that quenched the fire that was burning in the inner court of the temple, but these Romans put the Jews to flight and proceeded as far as the holy house itself. Which time one of the soldiers, without staying for any orders, 
without any concern or dread upon him at so great an undertaking, and being hurried on by a certain divine fury, snatched somewhat out of the materials that were on fire, and being lifted up by another soldier, he set fire to a golden window, to which there was the passage to the rooms that were round about the holy house on the north side of it. As the flames went upward, the Jews made a great clamor, such as so mighty an affliction required, and ran together to prevent it. And now they spared not their lives any longer, nor suffered anything to restrain their force, since that holy house was perishing, for whose sake it was that they kept such a guard upon it. I just thought that was interesting. Titus did not want the temple destroyed. But what had God said? That it would be destroyed, and so it was. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 52. Jeremiah prophesies shortly after Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 52. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Chapter 52, verses 12 to 14. This will describe the first temple being burned. Josephus was describing the second temple being burned. Verse 12, now in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. All the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. So that was the first fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And Jeremiah recorded it because he saw it. And Josephus documented the second burning. Are prophecies ever fulfilled more than once? Many times. Many times. What does Ecclesiastes 1.9 tell us? There's nothing new under the sun. Okay. Back to Isaiah chapter 64. Verse 11 says, Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praise you, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid to waste. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Verses 7 to 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, that is, they've come to John at the Jordan River on the first day of the Hebrew month of Elul, which begins the 40-day period called Teshuvah, which means repentance. All of Judea fled down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. 
because it was taught that some year at these fall holy days, God would bring in his kingdom on earth. And they wanted to be ready. So John would preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here come scribes and Pharisees who have no interest in repenting. So that's when he says in verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. What's that calling them? Sons of Satan, right? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Ah, what delivers us from the wrath to come? Repentance, which leads to salvation. Yep. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, meaning if you truly have repented, wink, wink, then prove it. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. See, that was their teaching. Was that, hey, we're circumcised. We're, we're descendants of Abraham. Therefore, God has to take us. We're like a legacy at a sorority or something like that in a college campus. You know what that means, right? If my father was in the fraternity, you got to take me. And John says, don't even think that. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Is that the same Titus as in our Bible? Absolutely not. Nope. Good question, though. So, what's my point? Why did I bring us here? Why did God destroy the two temples? Were they worshiping God in the temples? Or did they cut crushes into the walls and put up idols? Did they gather in the courtyards and turn their backs on God to worship Tammuz and the rising sun? Well, that's why he destroyed the first temple. What about the second temple? Pushing man-made rules instead of God's commandments? Absolutely true. They thought that every time they brought God a lamb there at the temple, that everything was square. They didn't have to repent. All they needed to do was throw God a lamb now and then. Is that true? Nope. That's wrong. So there were 40 years from the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah till the destruction of the temple. 40 years is a time of testing, just like the 40 years in the wilderness. So God gave Israel 40 years to come to understand that you can't continue in sin, give God a lamb, and expect to be forgiven. And when they had not as a whole come to that understanding, then he took the temple away. He said, now what are you going to do? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no, no remission of sins, no forgiveness. So, yes, ma'am. Uh, well, when we get to heaven, we'll have to ask them. <laughs> That's simply what they had been taught. It says in the Talmud back there that if you're circumcised, you're saved. 
And it says then, what about the Menim? By the Menim, they mean the Messianic Jews, those that have come to believe in that Yeshua fella. And it says that at the time of their death, an angel will come down from heaven and reattach the foreskin so they can go to hell. So it comes down to they were taught wrong. Why are there people sitting in church pews all over this world thinking they're saved, but when they come to judgment day are going to hear, I never knew you, because of the false teachers. And when you try and tell somebody, you've been taught wrong all your life, this is what's right, do they look at you like you have one head or two? Yeah, I know. Okay. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Verses 35 and 36. John chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. We may as well start in 34, because that starts the discussion. Yeshua answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Boy, does that not sound like Romans chapter 6, verse 16? And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. What does verse 35 mean? If I am a slave to sin, living in my sin in lawlessness, do I expect to abide in God's house forever? The answer is no. Back to Isaiah chapter 64. As we're bringing it to a close. Verse 12, will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? That's a terribly important verse. When Israel was exiled from the land, the temple was burned, it was destroyed. And the question being raised here, it's an end times question. The Jewish people at a whole are saying, Lord, there is no temple anymore. We cannot bring you a lamb as a sacrifice anymore. So will you never forgive us? Is forgiveness reliant upon our bringing the lamb to the temple, which no longer exists? What do you and I know? Messiah was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So verse 12 is a recognition that God must have a way for the blood to be shed to cover our sins and take them away. And that, of course, is the blood shed by our Messiah, Yeshua. So even the ancient Jewish sages look at verse 12 and go, if we can just find it, God 
has made a way. So the question boils down to, will you, will you refuse to forgive us forever because there is no longer a temple? And the answer is in chapter 65, verse 1. So let us get to chapter 65. So I can get in all kinds of trouble. Let me make sure I get my notes in order here. Verse 1, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. What is verse 1 about? The salvation of the Gentiles. Did the Gentiles have a temple? No. But over the last 2,000 years, have many Gentiles found salvation? Yes. Have many Jews found salvation? Yes. So the answer is yes, there is forgiveness. There is salvation even without the temple standing. Let's go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Does this mean there will never be another temple? No, it doesn't mean that. There will be another temple. In fact, there will be two more temples. But it doesn't take a temple for God to forgive. What does it take? Repentance. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 11. For the scripture says, whenever the New Testament says, for the scripture says, what are they talking about? The Old Testament. Whoever, what does the word whoever mean? Anybody, Jew or Gentile, makes no difference. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That word believes on him comes from the same word as faith. The verb believe is ha'amin in Hebrew. It's the same verb from which we get the word amen. Amen, so be it. That is, I believe what God said and it shall come to pass. If you believe God, what he has promised, you will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever, there's that whoever again, calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's it mean to call in the name of the Lord? Does that mean to shout out, Lord, Lord? We know from Matthew 7, that's not what it means. What does it mean to call in the name of the Lord? It means to repent and turn to him in love and obedience. Broken and contrite spirit. The word Lord means master, the one we serve. The problem with the folks in Matthew 7 is they're calling him Lord and saying, but I'm not going to do anything you tell me. Well, yeah, okay. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? So the first thing it requires to call the name of the Lord is faith. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? What's Paul trying to say? Get the word out. Spread the gospel. 
And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. The word gospel is what in Hebrew? Basar. But basar means meat or flesh. That is the gospel that God took on a body of flesh and blood so that he could die in our place to take our sins upon him. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Everybody go, duh. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report, meaning it was prophesied long before, not everyone will believe. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Here we come down to the problem. In Jewish yeshivas, do they study the word of God, or do they study commentaries? Commentaries. When you go to seminary here in the Christian world, do you study the Bible, or do you study commentaries? Commentaries. What should we be studying? The word, the word of God. How many times did Messiah say, you've heard it said? And then he'd say, I tell you it's written. When Satan tempted Messiah, how did he respond? Did he quote Shakespeare? He quoted the word of God. He quoted Deuteronomy. Verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world, meaning people have reason to know. They have reason to want to pick up the word of God and to study it. So when they don't, it's because what? They don't want to. Because if they study it, they're going to have to repent. Somebody give me a scripture. Maybe in 2 Thessalonians. Maybe in chapter 2. Don't lose your place here. But go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It tells us why people do not repent. Starting in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, referring to the Antichrist, false messiah, or beast of Revelation 13, depending upon your choice of words. Is according to the working of Satan. Satan's not a name, it's a description. Satan means adversary. It's the title for a prosecutor in a Jewish court. With all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. What is the truth? Psalm 119, verse 142, the Torah. And for this reason, that is, they don't want to hear God's words, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What's another term for unrighteousness? Lawlessness. They did not want to turn from their sin, therefore they simply didn't want to hear the words of God. Okay, back to Romans. Chapter 10, we had a little more to do here. Verse 19. Whoops, I see a red one out there. Let me check it first. <coughs> what was the commander of the Roman army who became a Caesar? Vespasian. Titus and Vespasian, I believe, were father and son. 
Yes. So those that don't hear the word of God do not belong to God, or can you work on them? You can work on them. Okay. Who cannot be saved? Until they take the mark of the beast in the tribulation, anyone can be saved. Verse 19, but I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I'll move you to anger by a foolish nation. Boy, does that not sound like what Isaiah wrote in chapter 65? Yeah, believe it or not, he read the Torah. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let us go back to Isaiah chapter 65. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Talking about down through history, the Gentile nations did not fall all over themselves to go worship God, did they? But yet, Isaiah says the gospel is going to get out to the Gentile world. How did that happen? That's the Great Commission. Go to Matthew 28. You're absolutely right, Daniel. Matthew 28. Starting in verse 18. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, what does that word saying mean? It means what follows is a quote. Also means Matthew was written in Hebrew. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. What does the word disciple mean? A student. A student is one who learns, one who studies. Of all the nations, that's Gentiles. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How many pastors have I heard preach on this and they always stop there as if there's a period? Do you have a period in your Bible? Or do you have a comma? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So what portion of the commandments were the disciples told to take out and teach to the Gentile world? All of them. Well, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But, we were looking just last night at Acts chapter 10. Messiah commanded it, and by Acts chapter 10, the disciples weren't doing it. Why? Because of man-made traditions that said Jewish people can't associate it with non-Jews. Therefore, Messiah said, take the gospel out, share it with the world, and they said, no, we can't do it. That's why God had to send the vision, Acts chapter 10, to say, do not call any man common or unclean. Then the gospel went to the house of Cornelius, and from there spread. The other apostles were still reticent to take the gospel to the Gentiles, so in Acts chapter 9, God stops Saul on the road to Damascus and says, it's your mission now, buddy. <laughs> oh, and how he suffered for it. Okay. 
Back to Isaiah. We're in chapter 65. I have stretched out my hands all day long to rebellious people. It's talking about the children of Israel. How many times did God send prophets to Israel to call them to repent? More times you can count. And how did they treat them? Beat them, they stoned them, they sawed Isaiah in half. Go to Matthew chapter 23. Messiah tells us that he sent the prophets again and again. It's still happening right now. Sure it is. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Why do you think the tribulation period is coming? So people will listen. Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. The words are read. They're Messiah's words. It says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. That word house refers to the temple. But at this point in time, there's a temple standing right there on the temple mount, and that's where the apostles are. Okay. Your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say... Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're standing right there at the temple. And the temple is beautiful. And everything is fine and hunky-dory. So the disciples, they, they come up to him and go, in, in chapter 24, verse 2, do you not see all these things? Because they show him the buildings of the temple and say, Lord, we don't follow. You say the temple's desolate, but it's beautiful. He says, yeah, wait 40 years. Okay, back to Isaiah. Chapter 65. Verse 2. I've stretched out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. Do you have a list of good things and bad things? Here's something to put on the list of bad things. Who walk in a way that's not good according to their own thoughts. What does that mean, according to their own thoughts? They're going to do it their way. Will they do it God's way? No. They sit back and say, who is God to tell us what to do? And you may look at me and go, they never said that. Go read the Talmud. They said, God gave us the Torah and now it's none of his business while we do with it. How many of you think that was a bright thing to say? No. No. So verse 3, he's going to explain a little more how they have misinterpreted things. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. That word anger is very descriptive. It describes the flaring nostrils of a horse before he pounds you into the dirt. It says that God is not a little unhappy. God is really angry. What could his own chosen people possibly have done? What could we possibly have done that would cause him to be so angry? 
The first thing you need to do is understand who provoked me to anger. What's the next word? Continually. Meaning without repentance. Who sacrifice in gardens. What's wrong with sacrificing in a garden? That's idolatry. Does God have a problem with idolatry? A big one. And burn incense on altars of brick. Yes, Bill? Does that... Excuse me. Verse 3. Verse 3. Anger continually to my face. Should not that teach us to fear God? It most certainly should. I mean, even even when we even when we want to obey him and, and diligently try, I mean it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yep, it also says, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear right. the one who can kill the right. body and the soul. Exactly right. Yeah. So what is, have, have I been conditioned so bad that that fear is pushed aside? We've been taught all our lives that the God of the Old Testament was a mean, vengeful God. Thank goodness he's been overthrown and replaced by this nice, new, friendly God. But, yeah, yeah, no, no, but what we're going to learn in Romans next week is that Yeshua is God from all eternity. When it says, Thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua, the Greek actually says, The Lord, which is the tetragon, Tetragrammaton, is Yeshua. And we're going to look at that Greek text in particular. And for right now, that verse 9 from uh, previously mentions 19 from uh, my nose. Micah has come back in my head. Yep. Yeah. It came right back. So, okay, thank you. Yep. You got to think back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. In Exodus chapter 3, 14, let's just turn over there for a moment because it's mistranslated in our Bibles. So let's make sure everybody has fixed it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a good understanding of those who do his commandments. Correct. Correct. Yep. So verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is not what the Hebrew says. It says, I will be whom I will be. And Moses explains that later to say, it depends who you are. If you are a loving child, God is a loving father. You will not find a more loving father. And if you are an enemy of God, he is a righteous God much to be feared. Okay. Let's go back to Isaiah 65, verse 3. Yes, sir. Exodus 3.14. Sorry, I didn't get to the microphone soon enough. Okay. Uh, further down in the verse, it also says, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Is that I am? No. Nope. You should say to the children of Israel, I will be Correct. has sent me to you. Right. Okay. And Moses explains that later to the children of Israel that how God is to you depends on who you are to him. And have you noticed, 
as we continue in Isaiah, we're going to see that God keeps having to use two hands. On one is my servants, on the other is my enemies. Did you have another comment, Paul? Apparently not. Okay. Lest we think, surely Israel did not really practice idolatry when they had the Lord in their very midst. But let's go back to Ezekiel and let's just see. Ezekiel 8 is right before the Shekinah glory of God departs from the first temple and has not returned yet, does not return until Ezekiel 43 when Messiah returns bearing the Shekinah glory of God. So Ezekiel chapter 8, we'll just do this short version, verses 5 to 18. Then he said to me, Son of man, talking to Ezekiel, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. An image of jealousy is a pagan idol. And they would put up one of these um, images at the entrance to a kingdom or something to say, this is the God who watches over our kingdom. Mm. Have you ever seen the Ten Commandments? Mm. As Israel goes out, as they're leaving Egypt, they go by these massive idols because those idols are set there to say, this is, these are the gods that Egypt worships. So here, what was done out of the north gate was the sin offering. And instead of a sin offering, they put up a pagan idol. If that was all, that would be horrible. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you'll see greater abominations. I remind you, this is in the temple, on the temple mount with God on the mercy seat in the temple. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they're doing there. So I went in and saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. Not just pagan idols, but every sort of creeping thing and abominable beasts. Like having a what? A TV? On your a wall TV? <laughs> okay, perhaps. <laughs> but can you imagine drawing pigs on the walls of God's temple? Shrimps, oysters, rats, other kinds of unclean things. What about the false presentations that people put forward to others? Uh, to hide the stuff that's on the inside, you know, the wickedness of the heart and the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yep. let's keep reading. It gets worse. Verse 7, And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. What are the 70 men called? The Sanhedrin. In their midst stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and the thick cloud of incense went up. Yes, sir? 
in Ezekiel chapter 8, that's verse 11. Mm -hmm. Are they burning incense to God? No. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. They're in God's own house. Saying God doesn't see what we're doing. He said to me, turn again. You'll see greater abominations that they're doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Who is Tammuz? Talking about the sun god. In God's temple, they're weeping for Tammuz. The weeping for Tammuz has come into the modern church's Lent. So he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you'll see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. You never did that. That's a horrible thing. And their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. That's the origin of the sunrise services. <coughs> it's because of this that God departs from the temple. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. It almost brings me to tears just to read that stuff. First Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 14. I could go to a hundred places, but this is just one. If you looked at 1 Corinthians 12 too, you would see that Paul is writing to believers who come out of the Gentile world. And as he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, what? Flee from idolatry. Not walk away from. Run. And I don't see any note that says, well, okay, bring an evergreen tree in every December and decorate it with lights and color Easter eggs, and, and well, God will just overlook those things. You don't see it anywhere. Flee from idolatry. Go to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is not what I always heard it was all about. It is not about should somebody, after they get saved, keep the commandments of God. That's not what it's about. To understand what it's about, you've got to read verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what's chapter 15 about? How can you be saved? How can Gentiles be saved? Is it through circumcision? No. How is it? Verse 9. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So, now it's settled. Salvation is by faith. Now what? 
That's verse 19, is the now what? Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. What does turning mean? Process. In the process. But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled from blood. Those four things are what characterize the pagan temples. If you are turning to God, you are turning away from pagan idolatry. If you're hanging on to these things, you are not turning to God. You are Lot's wife, who came out but turned back because she just didn't want to let go. And verse 21 says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So if you'll abstain from those four things in verse 20, you can come into the synagogue on Shabbat and learn what God has commanded of us. For some reason, people read this and go, oh, once you get saved, you don't keep the law. You can eat things sacrificed to idols and engage in sexual immorality. Is that what this says? Nope. No. How can we know for sure that's not what it says? Go to 1 Corinthians 6.9. Also written by Paul. First Corinthians six nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous, what's another term for unrighteous? The lawless will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, which means people, false teachers, will try to deceive you. And tell you that once you walk down the aisle and make your profession of faith, you can go back and walk in sin. He says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The key word for us here is nor idolaters. You want to play with the idols? God says, go away. Go play with the idols. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Where are you, Brother Wayne? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Thank you. Yep, not to keep company with a brother who is an idolater. Does that mean there are going to be people who claim to be saved and yet participate in idolatry? Yep, you know what I'm looking for though? Where Messiah says, go and sin again. Mm-hmm. Haven't found it. No. <laughs> But if you turn to Revelation chapter 2, John writes Revelation 30 years after all the other apostles are dead. The church is going off the rails because they're listening to false teachers. 
He says in verse 14 of Revelation 2, Revelation 2.14, let me give you a minute to turn there. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. We taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. I still have people come up to me and say, Paul said it's okay to eat things sacrificed to idols. <coughs> no, he does not. Who are the Nicolaitans? The Nicolaitans were a group that taught what's called antinomianism. They taught that when Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, the law was done away with. The commandments don't apply anymore. And God says twice in Revelation 2, he hates that, and yet it's the predominant theory in traditional Christianity of today, is that the commandments have been abolished. That was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. One last verse on this point is in Revelation 22. Well, I should say one set of verses because I can never read just one. They're like potato chips. Are you there in Revelation 22? Start in verse 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, which in Isaiah 41.4 is said by God. So this is Yeshua saying, I am God. Blessed are those that do his commandments. If your Bible reads, blessed are those who wash their robes, just throw it in the trash, and I'll get you a new one. Blessed are those that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs, that's male homosexuals, and sorcerers, that word's pharmakia, from which we get pharmacy is drug abuse, and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. So what does John say about idolaters? Are they saved? No, no they are not. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 65. Ooh, let's see. What is this one? Uh -huh. Chapter 65, we're up to verse 4. Who sit among the graves. What's wrong with sitting among the graves? That's uncleanness. Who spend the night in the tombs. Who eats swine's flesh. What's a swine? It's a pig. Uh-oh. God says people who eat pigs provoke me to my face continually. Yeah. And the broth of abominable things is, there in, is in their vessels. There's the shrimp gumbo and all those kind of stuffs. Yuck. Okay. Uncleanness. What does the Bible say about uncleanness? Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. 
verse 14. There are those who say that in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, that Messiah declared all animals clean and good for food. And here we are years later, and Peter says what in verse 14? I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So if Messiah had declared that all animals were now clean in food, Peter would have had a ham sandwich hundred times by now. Can you find any place in the New Testament where anybody has a ham sandwich? The answer is no. Nowhere. Let's look at Romans chapter 1 verse 24. What does it say about uncleanness? Romans chapter 1 verse 24. Those who turned away from God to, to pagan idolatry. He says in verse 24, Therefore, because they turned away from God to pagan idols, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them up to uncleanness. He said, do what you want to do. And then come judgment day, you'll find out why you shouldn't have done what you did. Romans 6.19 Yep, you have to be very careful. That's right. And when you go to the grocery store, be careful not to buy beef that's marked halal. If it was halal, it was dedicated to Allah. So in uh, Acts chapter, no, where are we? We're in Romans. Chapter 6, verse 19. It's in the section where Paul begins, What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He says in verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So does Paul say continue in uncleanness? It's okay now? Just the opposite. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We talked about last night. But not everybody was here last night, so we'll talk about it again. That's your punishment for not being here. No, I'm just kidding. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 17. Verse 16 says, you, your body is the temple of the living God because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Therefore, come out from among them that is the lawless of the world and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. 
I'll be a father to you and shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Is there anything there that makes it sound like, oh, go ahead and go eat unclean things and play with unclean things? Nothing. Nothing at all. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. Oops, I see a red number one. Let me check and see what that one is. To respond to Richard Gray, the answer would be yes. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. I may as well start in 20 and not start in the middle of a sentence. For I fear lest when I come, the eye is Paul. I shall not find you such as I wish. That I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of what? The uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. So Paul says, if you have not repented by the time I get there, you're not going to like me very much. Galatians chapter 5. I mean, I grew up being told, Paul says, go eat pigs. It's okay. I'm still looking for it. Haven't found it. Honestly, I'm not looking for it because I know it's not there. Galatians 5.19. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh. Let me ask you, are the works of the flesh good things or bad things? Bad things. The works of the flesh are evident. Evident means obvious. Obvious to the most casual observer. Which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what's one of those things that will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God? Uncleanness. We talked a lot last night about what do you say when somebody says this? How do you respond? When people say to me, Wayne, God doesn't care what we eat. My response tends to be, just ask Adam and Eve. (laughs) (laughs) What caused the fall of all mankind? They ate what they were told not to eat. Does God care what we eat? Yes, he does. Ephesians chapter 4. Mm-hmm. 
17 to 19. When people say, Wayne, you're a Judaizer. First thing I say is, that's not in the Bible. That's in Catholic doctrine. Are you sure you want to go there? But the second is, what does Paul say? Ephesians 4, 17. For this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. And if you tell their mind. If you're not to walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, how do you walk? You walk in Torah. Mm-hmm. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness and greediness. But you have not so learned, Messiah. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Yeshua. What's the truth? Torah, Psalm 119, verse 142. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The opposite of righteousness is lawlessness. So what does Paul tell these Gentiles to do? Stop walking in sin. Walk in the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Demonstrate that you have repented. I see a number one out there. Let me go see what it is. Ah. Cassandra says, Dr. Tony Evans said on YouTube that Peter went and had a ham sandwich after speaking with the Gentiles. But he didn't give a scriptural reference. (laughs) Do you know why? Because there isn't one. Thank you, Cassandra. Oh, sorry. That was Mark Private. Sorry, I didn't see that. Uh Uh-oh. But everybody wanted to know that anyway. As long as we're in Ephesians, go to chapter 5. Verse 3. Did Paul write Ephesians? Yep. Does he talk about uncleanness? Yep. Verse 3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetous, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. So which uncleanness should we avoid? All. All. What part of all do we not understand? Hmm. Same chapter, verse 5. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, which means there will be false teachers who will tell you it's okay to do these things. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. The sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Paul said, come out from among them. Talking about the sons of disobedience. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Verse 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. We'll read both together. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Does that sound like what he told the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 5? Yeah. Why would he tell the Colossians the same thing? Because it's the same message. That's right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We know 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because of his teaching on the rapture and resurrection, but there's much more in it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. Let me give you a chance to find it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Second Peter chapter 2. Why do you think the Bible contains this same message over and over and over again? Because we're pretty thick-headed, aren't we? Yeah. I agree. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. The end of verse 9 says, And to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Does God have a problem with uncleanness? He most certainly does. Yep. Back to Isaiah chapter 65. He also has a problem with despising authority. Yes, he does. Why is it that people don't want to walk in the commandments of God? Because they don't want to be told what to do. Yep, I want to do what I want to do. But do I want the consequences? Well, if I don't want the consequences, I better do what God wants me to do. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 5. So in verse 3, we saw idolatry. In verse 4, we saw uncleanness and even unclean foods. Verse 5, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. So verse 5 is talking about the Jewish people who think they're better than the Gentiles, even though they're committing the same sins. Does God care who your parents are? No. He cares where your heart is. Let's go to Romans 2. Romans 2. Verses 17 to 29. Seventeen to twenty-nine. Indeed, 
You are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? So he's saying, you're teaching others to avoid these sins, but are you doing them? You therefore who teach another, do not teach yourself. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you, as it's written. For circumcision is indeed profitable. What's that next word? Yeah. If you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Physical circumcision is simply a promise that I will keep the commandments of God. He says, if you don't, in God's eyes, you're uncircumcised. Verse 26, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? He didn't promise to keep them, but he keeps them. So God will look upon him as circumcised. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Paul uses the word Jew here differently than is used in most of the scripture. He uses it as in Judaism, which is the worship of the true and living God. He says, you say you worship the true and living God. You teach others to worship the true and living God. But what are you doing when people aren't looking? Are you keeping God's commandments? Are you honoring him? Or do you think that it's enough to tell others to do right while you secretly do wrong? Hmm. Food for thought, huh? Back to Isaiah, chapter 65. Let's see how much time I have. Ooh, time place. Okay. Verse 6, behold. What does behold mean? Listen. Shut up and listen. This is really important. Don't miss this. So let's mark it in our minds. It is written before me. I will not keep silence, but will repay. Will repay whom? Those who hate him. Those who refuse to be his servants. Those who turn away and make themselves abominable to him. Do you think they want what he's going to repay? No. Even repay into their bosom. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32. The closer we come to the rapture and the resurrection, the more I feel like we just got to pound some of these scriptures home. Jeremiah 32, 18. (coughs) 
when he said pay into the bosom that's what made me think of Jeremiah 32 18 you show loving kindness loving kindness is mercy it's the same word chesed c-h-e-s-e-d to thousands that's thousands of generations and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them that is those who refuse to repent of it the great the mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts Whenever you see the Lord of hosts, Adonai Zavaot, what kind of prophecy is it? It's an end times prophecy. The Lord of hosts is our Messiah Yeshua in Revelation 19. Here he is called the great, the mighty God. Is this the only place Yeshua is called the mighty God? No, it's also in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. So what gets repaid is the penalty for iniquity. And the wages of sin is? Death. Yeah, you got it. Okay. Go back to Isaiah 65, verse 7. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. What this is telling you is, you did not repent of the sins of your fathers. You've continued in them. The northern kingdom of Israel, when it separated from Judah after the death of Solomon, put up two pagan temples, each of which had a one in it, a golden calf. Did the northern kingdom ever repent of their idolatry? The answer is no. That's why in 722 BCE they were taken captive by Assyria and they have not yet returned. The southern kingdom of Judah would repent for a generation and turn away for a generation and would flip-flop back and forth. That's why they went into the Babylonian captivity but only for 70 years. And why 70 years? Who remembers? That's the number of Sabbath years they had failed to keep. People tell me, God doesn't care about the Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah, ask Judah. Okay. So verse 7 indicates that no matter how many prophets God sends, the people refuse to repent. But verse 8 tells us, yeah, yeah, but there's always a remnant. Always a remnant. Thus says the Lord. See how the word Lord is spelled? There's the tetragrammaton, the yod heh vav heh that we translate in our Bibles as the Lord. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it for blessings in it, so will I do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. In other words, on the vine, maybe most of the grapes are bad, but there's a few good grapes in there with that nice, fresh new wine that is so refreshing, so tasteful. So do you destroy the whole vine for the sake of the bad grapes? Or do you prune the vine to maintain the good grapes but to destroy the bad? That's John chapter 15. So God has the remnant. Let's go to Romans chapter 11 verses 1 to 5. The Apostle Paul tells us that even today, God still has a remnant. Romans 11, verses 1 through 5. Yep. 
I say then, has God cast away his people? Mejanoito. Certainly not. God forbid in the King James. For I also am an Israelite to the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, you have, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What does the divine response say to him? I reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. I mentioned the King James Version. I did a lot of study this week on the different versions of the Bible. And do you realize that there was an edition of the King James Bible that was put out? I think it was 1631 that had a boo-boo and a commandment was, Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I'm glad people don't read that one anymore. Okay, back to Isaiah chapter 65. We have time for verse 8. Well, we did verse 8. How about verse 9? I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah and heir of my mountains. That's the promise of a remnant that will return. A remnant that will be saved. And who is that remnant? It's the elect. It says, my elect shall inherit it. The word elect in Hebrew is the same word as gets translated here in our Bibles as chosen. We refer to Israel as the chosen people. Same as the elect people. My elect shall inherit it. Meaning that there will always be believers in the Jewish people. And there always have been. From the days of Messiah, there's always been a remnant of Messianic Jews. Sometimes very small. Today, much larger. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Let's go back to Romans 11, to verses 25 to 27. Romans 11, 25 to 27 says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Daniel just taught a mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and will turn away ungodliness from Jacob and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When it says all Israel will be saved, does that mean every Jewish person that was ever born? No, Paul says they're not all Israel who call themselves Israel. So we have to look at Zechariah. Zechariah. Chapter 13. Verses 7 to 9 cover more than 2,000 years. Verse 7 begins, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that's the crucifixion. And the sheep will be scattered, that's Israel being scattered throughout the nations, 
in 70 common era. Then I'll turn my hand against the little ones, meaning Israel and exile in the nations did not have an easy time. If you ever want your heart broken, read a history of the Jewish people throughout the Middle Ages. It's truly horrible. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord. Now we're talking about the seven-year tribulation period. That two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. Two-thirds of Israel will die in the tribulation period. But one-third shall be left in it. So one-third will survive as believers. I'll bring the one-third through the fire. We're refining them as silver is refined. You refine silver by putting it through the fire how many times? Seven times. Fire pictures judgment, seven years of the tribulation period. This is a purifying time for that third. And test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I'll answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one, underline that, each one will say, the Lord is my God. And let's look at Zechariah 8.23 before we quit since we're in Zechariah. I've gone over a couple of minutes. If you remind me next week, I'll quit a couple of minutes early. Uh, Zechariah 8.23. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times prophecy. In those days... So it has to start before the day of the Lord. So it has to be going on now. Ten men, that's a minion, a representative group. From every language of the nations, those are Gentiles, shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man. It's not the sleeve. The word is kanaf. It's the corner of the prayer shawl where the tzitzit are tied, representing the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Saying, let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. In other words, there's going to be a remnant of the nations that are going to recognize that the commandments were never abolished. That if you love God, you will walk in his commandments. So if you look around the room, this prophecy is being fulfilled today right here. You look around the room, there are Jews here, there are non-Jews here. God doesn't care who you are. He cares where your heart is. And with that, our time has come to an end. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 10.